Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. Today we are going to be talking about musicians living with ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And with this episode, I am hoping that this conversation we have offers visibility, awareness, some support, and really a lot of education to musicians who are living with ADHD and the people who work with them so that we can have a very supportive and positive working environment together. And I'm so excited for my guests. I'm going to introduce you to them now very quickly. My first guest you will recognize if you are following this show. She is Dr. Kensley Beal. She was with us in our What Musicians Can Learn From Athletes episode. So Kensley, thank you for being here and hello. Hi, thank you for having me again. (laughs) I'm so happy that you're here. And we also have Dr. Joy Hoffman. Hello, Joy. Hi, nice to meet you all. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. And then we also have Miss Sarah Dodderweik, who is joining us actually from Cutter. So hello, Sarah. Hi, I'm so excited to talk to you all and to meet you all. This is just so great. First, before we kind of dive into the topic, I would love to hear a little bit about each of you and what your interest is with ADHD. And I think we'll just go in that same order. Let's, um, Kinsley, would you like to go first? And then we'll have Joy and then Sarah. Absolutely. So I just finished my PhD in performing arts health. So I study the physical and mental like injuries and health aspects of being a musician. And during my PhD, I had some struggles um, because there weren't sort of set outlines of the order of which like studies needed to happen or guidance of here's how you start research projects and things of that nature. And I really just found myself floundering and, you know, professors were calling me difficult or lazy. And it was just a really hard time of life. And I had one professor come to me and I will thank her for the rest of my life. And she said, I don't think you're difficult. She said, I just think you need structure. And so she laid out this plan for me to follow. And it wasn't like, here's everything you do, but it was just sort of a framework. And I was just able to flourish under her guidance and, you know, finish the first one in my class. And it it was that moment that I needed to move forward. And so I started thinking, well, okay, is there something wrong with me? You know, is there something with my brain that caused, that means I need that structure when maybe other people don't. And so I went through some diagnostic uh, testing, actually expecting an autism diagnosis. <laughs> and they were like, and um, they actually came out with an ADHD diagnosis. And that sent me down a rabbit hole of using those research skills. And then I came across Joy's research and Sarah's research. And I was like, oh, there's other people like me. And I thank you so much again for just inviting us to share the story because I know that there are other people out there who have similar stories to each of us and how ADHD presented. And hopefully they'll find some community and relief by hearing our stories. Thank you so much. Joy, how about yourself? Yes. Oh, Kensley, I just love your excitement. It just helps me remember why I did what I did. And I'm just so excited that we're just in an age where we can find out about these things. Um, so I had been working with a therapist um, a few years back and I kind of 
you know, it's it's a very tender topic. You don't want to joke about having something like ADHD when it really is such a serious thing. But finally, one day she pulled out, um, you know, the DSM five or whatever edition it was and just kind of opened it up and looked at the ADHD symptoms and, you know, asked me just, just the basic questions. It wasn't, you know, a big official um, testing that I had done, but it was like, yes, 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 yes. And it was like, okay, so this isn't an official diagnosis, but I clearly fit, you know, almost all of the criteria. And so it was a big aha moment right around the same time that I was, considering going back to school. You know, I never had any ambition to go uh, get a DMA, but it was this light bulb moment of, oh, okay, so if I have this neuroatypical wiring, okay, it doesn't mean anything's wrong with me. It's just, I need to go at this differently. So when I started my DMA, I just felt this weight lifted and realized like, okay, I can be a student again, you know, this time not in my late teens, early twenties, but you know, more like 30 and I can just explore this in a new way. And so from the get go, I had an interest in, you know, revamping my own approach to practicing and, and, you know, even just doing coursework and all of that, and then ended up turning this into research for um, my dissertation. And so I was able to find other musicians. Of course, this wasn't hard because there are so many of us, whether we know it or not, Um, you know, but I was able to, you know, through a very, um, you know, structured interview process, um, find out experiences, you know, of other musicians that have um, either official diagnoses or, you know, therapeutic diagnosis. And it was just so um, enlightening and it really made you know, the whole process of writing a dissertation, which can be obviously a a big, big burden. Um, But it was just a delight, honestly, to realize, oh, I'm not alone. I knew I wasn't alone, but now I have official proof that I'm not alone. So um, it really just was a joy to be able to, to put this all together. Oh, that's great. Great. Now, how about you, Sarah? Tell us about yourself. So I um, had finished my master's degree at FSU in Florida and last summer, and I actually wasn't diagnosed until maybe by maybe my first or second semester in my master's program. And what had made me kind of reach out to uh, the organization that diagnosed me um, was just, I was just struggling a lot in my classes with the reading and it, master's programs don't have a lot of that structure. And I realized that I was struggling, like I was drowning in the work. And uh, my family, I have a lot of um, ADHD history in my family. And I was like, this could be a possibility. So I went and I got my diagnosis. Um, It was very clear I had it. (laughs) And just getting that diagnosis really like lit a fire under me to make this my thesis. Uh, This is what really jump-started my research into ADHD and especially in women. Because as I was looking up articles for myself to kind of understand myself and how ADHD affects other women. I didn't see a lot. I didn't see any research. I just saw it was all for men. And I was like, well, if no one else will do it, I will do it. (laughs) So um, that set me on the path of just finding as much as I can about ADHD and then interviewing. I think I interviewed about 25 other women who uh, 
has ADHD and they are a musician as well. And finding that community, I found, honestly, I found the community of this woman through Facebook. There's a lot of support groups on Facebook for women with ADHD or just people with ADHD in general. And, um, went on there, kind of made a poster of my thesis. If people would like to take my survey or do an interview with me. And that's kind of how I researched the topic. Um, and talking to these women was so inspiring and so just validating because I was like, wow, I'm not alone. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into the ADHD community and learning more about ADHD and sharing what I've learned with others. I have to say all three of you, I love how all three of you have touched on the relief that came from knowing you're not alone and the support that everyone's able to give each other. Oh, I love it. And I hope that this episode, I hope that people hear this and realize that they're not alone too. So thank you. You are all so gracious for being here. Let's dive in a little. Um, Kensley, this was a bit your brainchild to have this. We were chatting after our first interview and you had brought this to my attention. And the more I looked into it, the more I researched it, I was just blown away how, like how important this topic is. So can you give us a quick rundown on what ADHD is and why it's important for musicians in particular to have a sense of community? And information. Sure. So ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a diagnosable condition under the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic standard that is used today. And the National Institute of Health really characterizes ADHD as having like three separate areas, inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. And I would add to that that also maybe emotional dysregulation as a part of that, which I think really falls under the impulsivity part of things. But I think it's important to sort of separate that because that can be a way the ADHD can particularly manifest. And the reason I think it's especially important for musicians is that people with ADHD are often very sensitive to criticism. And in a community that is basically bred on needing correction and one that is constantly seeking perfection, right. well, then that causes meltdowns and a whole other, you know, set of issues. And then on, <laughs> on top of that, you know, one of the most common problems that I see is music performance anxiety. And we think of music performance anxiety as just maybe the energy that can be debilitative or hurtful before a performance and that the performance is the only driving factor behind that, that negative energy, but that's not actually the case. There's actually several different factors that can affect it. And that can be biological factors, social factors, or psychological factors. And so people who have ADHD or more trauma can be more likely to experience music performance anxiety. And so understanding that will allows people insight into how to address it better for them. It's the solution isn't a one size fit all solution. Oh, that's so interesting. I never even thought that that would play into performance anxiety. Sarah, you had a lot of research about perfectionism in your research and you had like some personal experiences and you actually kind of 
touched on it with the idea of masking. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah. So um, masking, how they kind of define it is, um, to quote it, artificial performance of social behaviors that are seen as socially acceptable in the neurotypical community. So masking essentially is um, when someone who's neurodivergent they are afraid of being seen as different or to get scolded by, say, a parent. When you're a child, masking is kind of a fail-safe. So those who are neurodivergent start masking at an early age because they don't want to be scolded by their parents or um, people who are adults. And so they start trying to camouflage themselves, essentially. They put a mask on, if you will, um, a visible mask to um, avoid getting critiques for their actions, even though those actions may seem normal to them, to others who are neurotypical, they see it as something's wrong with them and they don't want to be perceived as something is wrong with them. So what a lot of issues that I've come upon uh, while talking to women is just learning to not interrupt people because ADHD, some people struggle with impulse control and that could include wanting to finish other people's sentences or interrupting them because their brain just moves so much faster. And they learn not to interrupt because if they interrupt, then they get scolded. And that gives them anxiety. And they're like, oh, no, (laughs) I should stop. (laughs) So learning not to interrupt is a form of masking or um, becoming a perfectionist and to avoid any rejection. If I do everything perfectly, I will not get in trouble. I will not be critiqued as hard because if I get critiqued, then I will be very upset and be anxious and feel unworthy. And that kind of comes into the idea of rejection sensitivity dysphoria, RSD. You are super sensitive to rejection and you just do not want to mess up because it feels like when you are rejected that you are completely unworthy. You are completely in the wrong. You feel terrible. Um, And it's just, it's dysphoria. It's one, when you're thinking one thing, when it's not true, Um, but it feels true. And so that causes a lot of anxiety. And in performance, when you, um, being a perfectionist, it has its pros and cons, especially with those who have ADHD Um, the pros could be, you do feel alleviated from, um, not getting as many critiques or negative feedback, but the cons can result in over-practicing, feeling discouraged, maybe wanting to quit altogether, maybe even feeling betrayed by a group that you felt like you belonged into. Wow. Right. So, um, so masking and perfectionism is just a way for, those with ADHD to avoid negative critiques, but it is harmful. It's heartbreaking, but it makes sense. It's just, yeah, 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 it does make sense. And then that perfectionism that can lead right into that performance anxiety that Kensley was Mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. Right. Um, Did all three of you kind of experience that say, I know ADHD is different for everybody, but did you all kind of have experiences with this? Definitely. (laughs) I actually don't get performance anxiety. I oh, good for you. People. But I have a I have a theory as to why. And I think that's because like growing up, I was like just so oblivious to so much because of the ADHD that like, like I was like, oh, going out and performing on a stage in front of 2000 people, like solo memorized, like I got that. Like I just, it just didn't even cross my mind. So I think that I, 
I do think the ADHD is actually part of the reason I don't experience, but I think that's not typical. I don't think um, that's typical for any type of musician, regardless of ADHD <laughs> or not. <laughs> I, I mean, we do. My mom does have videos of me at four years old, like stealing the mic from the kid next to me and like singing their solos. So, I mean, I maybe it's just ingrained. <laughs> like I just just born that way. Um, but to to sort of continue what Sarah was talking about, that over-practicing and that need to be perfection, I think we don't actually have research on this right now, but my guess is that we would typically see more injuries, specifically overuse injuries, because of people wanting to continue to practice. And then another thing she mentioned that I think is really, really key is talking about masking and as a young child, sort of looking at your peer, I mean, I have this vivid memory of being very self-conscious about my laugh. And there was a really popular girl that everyone loved. And they would always talk about how much they loved her laugh. And so I tried to learn how to emulate her laugh because I was really self-conscious about mine. Yeah. And so when you're absorbing how other people are thinking, it uses so much brain space and I think that that's why a lot of people are exhausted <laughs> who have ADHD is because we are spending a lot of time if we're in a group of people where we feel like we have to try and act neurotypical and then we may come home and just flop and crash. Yeah, so I we sleep can so much. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I go out with a, with a friend group, I, I notice myself. I'm constantly just observing them and seeing how they're all acting and what, what the vibe is. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I have to fit this or else they're going to think I'm weird. <laughs> and then when I get home, I just crash because <laughs> it's so tiring. <laughs> and Joy, you were, you were nodding your head too. What are your experiences with like masking, performance anxiety, all those things? Yes. Well, the first thing that I have to acknowledge was I felt like I was being tested because I kept wanting to interrupt you, Sarah. I was trying so hard not to. <laughs> and you were talking about that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try really hard not to. But um... I'm going to have to be okay. <laughs> oh my God. I felt the same way. I was like, I was like jiggling my legs beneath me. Like, don't interrupt. Don't interrupt. <laughs> so... So really, this podcast is just a way for us to practice our good uh, habits. But um, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's so hard because we don't want to, um, you know, just say this is only unique to female musicians with ADHD. Yeah. I mean, so much of it, you know, it's like being a, um, a people pleaser. I mean, I think that goes into what you're you're mentioning as well. Yeah. Um, you know, th there's just a flip side, like being a people pleaser can also just mean, wow, you're a really good chamber musician because you can see what's going on with the four other people around you. And boom, you know, the, the vibe, like you talked about it, Sarah, whether it's, you know, hanging out with a friend group or really, you know, just maybe you're subbing, you know, like I'm a bassoonist and I've had to kind of just jump in for a, a trio for a kid's concert. And, and, you know, it's really a gift, all of those social graces that we learn, whether it's through failing or <laughs> just being, <laughs> sensitive and, and being quick on your feet. I mean, I think that's one thing we can all identify with is that, you know, we are able to pick up very quickly on cues. Um, and so I, yeah, for every negative, I think there is a positive to it as well. What are some practical tips for people with either with masking or the perfectionism? What are some tips that you have found that have helped you in your life with those things? That's a good question. Still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for me, 
So there, there's two realms of thought when getting a diagnosis. Um, for some people, self-diagnosis is enough for them to look to look at the set of symptoms and say, okay, I think I fit into this group. I I I, I feel like these are my people. I feel like I fit the symptoms and they resonate with it and that's fine for them. I am not one of those people. I was like, I need the data and I need it on a piece of paper and I need it to be done by someone who understands this. And for me, getting the diagnosis allowed me the freedom to say, this is who I am. There are parts of me that maybe society needs to work to accept better and provide accommodations for me. And then there are some parts where I can also be okay saying, I can learn also to be part of your world because I feel like it's a trade-off. Like I learn a little bit more about you and you learn a little bit more about me. And that has given me a freedom to actually express myself and who I am. And it also provided some insight into why I was struggling as a PhD student when I knew I was smart and I knew I was capable and that I really just needed people to recognize the accommodations that I needed in that time. And that for me was very freeing. So from my perspective, in my experience, getting a diagnosis was the most helpful thing that I was able to do. I will add a caveat that getting a diagnosis as an adult female is really difficult from multiple perspectives because most of the diagnostic criteria are built for adolescent males, children, yeah, adolescent males. And on top of that, getting a diagnosis as an adult female is also expensive. Um, it can be upwards of like a thousand dollars. And now maybe there are some clinics that are more affordable than that, but from most of what I've found, it's been a thousand dollars plus. So wow, it can be inaccessible to some people as well. So I don't want to say, you know, you have to go run out and get a diagnosis that even if you can't afford it, but I just, I, for me, that was the most helpful thing in this journey. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that about being an adult female getting a diagnosis because all three of you were adults when <laughs> you were diagnosed. And yep. I actually just read a news article about how the prevalence of ADHD in adult females is skyrocketing. And is that just because they're not as they're not as noticed because of this masking we were talking about when they're children? I think it's skyrocketing. I think it's always been there. I think it's just becoming more socially acceptable and women actually have access to information like, oh, I can relate to this. Maybe I should get tested. And they actually have the means to go get tested, um, especially when they're women, because they're not living under their parents anymore. They don't need their um, they don't need their permission um, again. But what Kensley brought up, the a good point was the money issue. It is super expensive to get a diagnosis. So I think it is skyrocketing. But there's probably more women out there who have not had the means to get a proper diagnosis. There's a. I saw a really good parallel um, about why there is a skyrocketing diagnosis sort of happening right now. And they drew a parallel to people getting a diagnosis, or it's not a diagnosis, of being left-handed. So as a young child in maybe like the 60s, being a left, left-handed left was considered wrong and they would force yep. people to write with their right hand. Mm -hmm. And then once it became more accepted, 
you saw this skyrocket. And then now it's pretty much leveled out because it's acceptable to be either right-handed or left-handed. And I think that we will probably see something similar where we're going to see the skyrocket trajectory and then we're going to see it start to level off a little bit. Oh, that's very I interesting. Agree. I never yeah. thought of it like that. I think I, I saw the same article <laughs> or that like <laughs> news clip or something too. I think there might be a degree of, and, and maybe Kensley can speak of this more, um, just the whole executive function um, mm-hmm. idea. And oftentimes, um, like with some of my research, you know, it's like you're too smart to have ADHD. You know, it's like intelligence seems to preclude a diagnosis. Um, but I think what often happens is that because of intelligence and because of maybe even some of this nasty imperfectionism, you can make it really far. You know, maybe you make it through high school, maybe you make it through undergrad, master's. Like for me, you know, getting um, an awareness, you know, before my doctorate was just kind of this, okay, I have now done what I can do and I've hit an impasse and let me understand why the impasse is there. And so maybe, you know, because of these very successful, intelligent women, maybe it's like they have found the thing that is keeping them from moving forward. Um, and so, and also to speak to what Kinsley's saying, um, yes, absolutely. A diagnosis is so expensive. And so for some, you know, with social media, just being able to follow like a, an account of, oh, this, you know, woman is professionally successful and she has ADHD. I mean, there's so many hashtags. It can be enough. Um, and for me, um, it was the therapist that I had been working with at the time that was all I needed to go to the disabilities office at UGA where I got my um, doctorate. And suddenly I was allowed time and a half on exams. So suddenly I was able to pass my theory comprehensive exams and history. I mean, so for, for me, that was just huge. And so I think the more we can just encourage people, you know, whether it's an official diagnosis or working with a therapist, you know, um, I think men and women both um, who are neuroatypical um, need to just be empowered to draw on these resources because there is help out there. And, you know, just because you can't take a test in the normal time period doesn't mean you don't know the material. You just might need more time. So part of what I want to do is just, um, you know, help others get the help that they absolutely deserve, but may not know, you know, it's out there. Sarah and Joy's research was so eye-opening to me when I found it because all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's like me and that's like me and that's like me. And so I actually created a bingo card for people to use (laughs) and like this bingo card is not for diagnostic purposes. But it it was things like, um, I, I remember in my undergrad, my telling my teacher, I was like, oh yeah, I practiced at Gilmore Girls. And she looked at me like, you do what? And I mean, I was doing really well and she didn't care. She had just never heard of it. And so she was fine with it. She was like, well, as long as you're, you know, doing well, I don't care. And then I got to my master's and my teacher did care that I was practicing with TV in the background. And I floundered in my master's. Like I just did terribly. And then I read Joy. I never totally put it together. And then I read Joy's uh, 
thesis. And it said it, there were like 37.5% of the people who she interviewed said, I practice with music or with TV in the background because it helps me focus. And I was like, that's me. Like that was, that is me. And then, you know, Sarah was talking about in her research, some of the people she interviewed would read the same music history text over and over and over and have no yep. idea what they had read. And I, like in my undergrad, I would write on the bottom of my of my test because I loved my music history teacher. I loved her. She was awesome, but I could not pass her test. And I was like, this is not a reflection on you. I cannot absorb this material. Like I like, you know, and I like, I mean, she would always write me back and, but I, (laughs) but I didn't know at that time I had ADHD. So anyway, I created a bingo card with all these different things, like doesn't have pencils at rehearsals, practices with TV in the background, you know, because I think these are some of the things that affect us as musicians that don't always come out in because people aren't usually in rehearsals if they're not musicians. That's true. What are some things that people who work with maybe neurodivergent people, what's something that they need to be aware of to make accommodations, like simple things that we can do to make accommodations for someone that has ADHD? The, The one that was most evident for me is that I needed structure. And that was what happened in my PhD program was I needed things to be laid out in a way that I could read them. Like just if someone told me something, it wasn't going to just stick. I needed it in a physical form and accepting that maybe that's a little bit more work for you, or maybe that means that you're just in compliance with the university regulations. Um, but that was, that's, that was, that would have been critical to me not struggling in the first part of my PhD. So maybe at rehearsals, having a schedule written out that everyone can see and following the schedule pretty much that, or even in classes having, Mm -hmm. you know, a syllabus or having like a, here's a step one, two, three of how you would get started. And it doesn't mean you're doing the research for the person, but you're just giving them a framework for how to move forward. Mm -hmm. That's a good, that's very good advice. Um, I think in, in my own experience, um, the stereotypes of ADHD held back some of my experiences a lot. In my master's program, I had either peers or teachers who, um, who kind of didn't believe me when I finally had my diagnosis and I told them and I just made them, or I let them know about it. They were kind of say, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like it's a bad thing. And it just like, I guess being accepting of the diagnosis and giving that student, um, accommodations is really, really important. And even before I was diagnosed, uh, when I was getting my music education degree, I had a professor who, he was my, um, flute professor. So he was my, um, like lessons teacher. It was constant negative feedback because that was his teaching style. So in my experience, positivity, even if you do have a negative feedback, you should layer it with positive feedback, the negative, and then positive. So I think different teaching styles and learning about the students' needs in that sense, like what's the best way to teach them is what kind of needs, what the professors need to be aware about, especially with one-on-one instances like a lesson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so many venues here when you're looking at teaching and um, Mm. gigs and, you know, conductor to orchestra, teacher to private student. I mean, there's just so many um, applications to this. I will say um, when getting instructions on going to a gig, 
I really need very clear and concise instructions on like, Mm. here's the address, not, oh, it's embedded in this email, like four messages that, you know, just Mm -hmm. tell me exactly where I need to go. Tell me what door I need to go in. And, you know, because uh, one thing I had joked with Kensley when she was constructing her bingo board was like, you know, gets to gigs way too early and then ends up late because (laughs) lose track of time. And yeah, so it's just like, show me where to go. So I know exactly where I need to be at the time I need to be there because, you know, we're, we're trying just like everyone else with or without a diagnosis. We're trying, we're trying to get to the gig on time, but sometimes (laughs) we feel like we have to get there five hours early and then we need to fill that time. And then we end up late. So anyway, it's a matter of, um, obviously not making excuses like to be a professional, you know, musician, there is a baseline, um, you know, but at the same time, I think we can definitely empower our colleagues to, you know, help us help you type thing of, yeah, just be very clear only like what's most necessary in an email, not a lot of extra stuff. Um, Cause I know that's where I tend to shut down. If there's information overload, it's like, I create information overload by myself all the time. I don't need it from anyone else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got it. So clear and concise, clear and concise. <laughs> I would I would agree. And even in, you know, private lessons, just leaving, I can remember teachers saying like, okay, so this week we're going to work on this and 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 be like, okay, this is your number one focus. If you get through this, here is your number. And just bullet, bullet points is how I, bullet points are my love language. Like that's, that's the way I will interpret material. I wish I had more Uh, points. (laughs) um, And I, you know, I hope this podcast brings a general awareness because I do think that not to put any more on the, on the shoulders of the private lesson teachers because they have to do so much and they're already underpaid. And I completely understand that. But my hope is that people who listen to this will start to recognize maybe signs like maybe a student who's constantly showing up late or is constantly getting distracted in their lessons by getting off topic or bring color-coded like dynamics or, you know, always are forgetting their pencils, that maybe this is signs that there could be something else going on and that that requires a gentleness and an understanding rather than like punishment or discouraging yeah. words because the people with ADHD and any really any type of neurodivergence to my understanding take that a little bit more to heart and can't like brush it off yeah and we will ruminate yeah. on that for a long time <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah pretty much those are all yeah those are all fantastic tips I it's just words of wisdom I think for everybody I, I think that's fantastic Joy, some of your research, I love this. You discussed Dr. Angela Beeching's six qualities for a successful music career and in context of Dr. Gerber's model for employment success for adults with ADHD. Can you explain a little bit of this concept and the things that you found? Sure, absolutely. And I would say for anyone who hasn't read Beyond Talent by Angela Miles Beeching, I would definitely recommend it. Um, Very helpful. 
uh, book. So she first lays out um, just the six qualities that are necessary to be a successful professional musician. And um, it's really what you would expect, you know, talent, hard work, a winning attitude, sales skills, a support system, and then strategies for reaching long-term goals and short-term goals. And so um, I noticed as I was doing my research for uh, my dissertation that those six qualities worked really well um, with this article I had read by Dr. Gerber. And so he talks about um, this model for employment success, and he talks about internal and external manifestations. So uh, the internal ones are desire, goal orientation, and reframing. And then the external ones are persistence, goodness of fit, learned creativity, and social ecologies. And that, I, these all sound like a you know a bunch of buzzwords. And people with ADHD, nah, you want me to <laughs> get to the punchline? Um, but bottom line, I mean, and he even said this in his article. This isn't really anything that's um, earth shattering. This is what anyone would need, you know, to be successful um, in a, any sort of career. So I noticed. Um, in just pairing them that, you know, desire, desire to succeed goes with that winning attitude. And then um, goal orientation has to do with strategy. You know, how are you going to reach long-term goals, short-term goals, you know, auditions versus, you know, gigs and recitals um, and, you know, persistence and hard work. Um, and then goodness of fit and talent go together and then learn creativity and sales skills and then um, social ecologies and support systems. Now, for the ADHD uh, musician, I think that one is is really, really especially interesting. Um, in the ADHD community, the term um, body double comes um, a lot. And it's this whole idea of having someone help keep you accountable. So in music school, I mean, you may have already had this, like um, a practice buddy. You know, you walk to the school of music at the same time and you find a practice room. And so it's really just someone who's helping you um, stay on track. And so body doubles are are hugely useful for someone with ADHD. Um, and then though most of the um, terms were like a one-to-one -one, um, between being a successful musician and a successful professional with ADHD, um, the one that was unique just to people with ADHD is reframing. And I know that's a very um, popular buzzword in, in therapy, but the whole idea of just reinterpreting your ADHD ADHD experience as something positive. You know, there's no question that you have weaknesses. Okay. Everybody does. Okay. But you are really able to get to the point where you use your ADHD for good. You know, you realize that oh, I have a lot of energy and I haven't even had that much coffee today, or I know how to like say yes to this gig and I'm going to show up and I can jump in because I have all the adrenaline in the world. So it's really just learning how to make what could be a weakness and what very well, is a weakness a lot of the times just into something that you can really just harness for good and really enhance your career. That is so awesome. I love that. I just so everybody knows, I'm going to have links to all of your research 
on our website so that I really encourage everyone to go and read, you know, Joy and Sarah, your research and Kinsley, your bingo card, like all of it. We've got to, I really want people to get get more. I will be checking out the bingo card. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just, and yeah, and Kinsley has a, has a website that's very helpful. She has a blog um, that helps musicians as well. And so I'm going to have links to all of these. I want people to really learn from you wonderful, wonderful women. It's just been fantastic. So we're going to finish up. I thank you all for being here. I would love to have one last word of encouragement from each of you, if you don't mind. So let's just go in that same order that we did at the beginning. We'll have Kensley and then Joy and then Sarah. Your last words of encouragement for any musician with ADHD. Remember that ADHD is a superpower, that we have the ability to see the world in ways maybe other people can't and find solutions to things in ways that are unique and that we can hyper-focus and get a lot done in a very (laughs) short amount of time. (laughs) And there is a community for you. If you are thinking that you might have ADHD or if you have been diagnosed, there is a community for you. I think I would like to offer a specific word of encouragement to students, um, whether undergrad, masters, or at the DMA level. Um, If you have any doubts or questions, um, just really lean into what's available to you as a student, you know, whether there's um, therapy or just mental health um, centers on campus, use that because you're in such a unique season of life where you have that, you know, um, like Kensley said, it can be very expensive to get a diagnosis. And, you know, if you recognize you have ADHD symptoms, start using the the compensations that other people have authored. You know, you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So I would just encourage um, students especially to just um, seek after all of the help that's available. You know, the Disability Resource um, Center, you know, if you need extra time on tests, um, just go after that. And, you know, I know anyone who's listening to this could reach out to any of us. And, you know, if you don't know how to do it, it's like, just, just ask. So lean into it because you absolutely deserve all of the help that's out there. I think one of the main things is just to persevere. You, as someone with ADHD, especially as a woman, you'll come across a lot of people who either don't believe you or just give you a hard time. Just keep going, keep doing you. Um, You can let yourself be upset for five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, uh, but just find a solution. Keep going. You do not want to spiral. Um, You go down that spiral and it's a lot. It's very hard to get out of it and to stand up for yourself. I think that you know what you need. You know how you are. You, You know yourself the best. So just stand up for who you are and keep going. Thank you. Thank you to all three of you. I appreciate you coming and uh, and your generosity with your advice and your research. And just thank you so much. It's been such a joy to have all of you here. Thank you. It's been lovely being here. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us today on the Musicians versus the World podcast in our roundtable discussion on musicians and ADHD. If you are as inspired by this conversation as I was, Please share this episode with friends, family, or students that may benefit from it. Another great way to help other people find the show is by leaving a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, if you're more of a visual person, the video version of this conversation will be up on our Musicians vs. the World YouTube channel in just a couple of days. 
And you can also find links to our guest websites, research, and books mentioned in this interview in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians versus the world is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. A very special thank you to our guests, Dr. Kensley Beal, Dr. Joy Hoffman, and Ms. Sarah Dodderwike for sharing their time, their research, and their experiences with us. In today's episode, you've heard excerpts performed by Dr. Beal on clarinet and Dr. Hoffman on bassoon. All music was shared with permission, and any other incidental music you heard today was composed by me. Join us next time where we'll be continuing our dive into the world of neurodiversity in musicians. I will be joined by Dr. Milena McLaren, and we'll talk about how different people process information when reading musical notation. And she also shares strategies and tips for those who feel like they're hitting a wall when it comes to reading music. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope that you will join us for that. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have any questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians that you'd like to share, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.